you can start by opening up to Romans 13. We're going to start here, but we're not going to stay here. And I, I was thinking about this as we were um, coming into this place. Another benefit of uh, afternoon services is that we are relatively unaffected by the time change, right? It's great. It's great news. I wanted to just quickly look at Romans 13. I want to read it for us. But like I said, um, we're not staying here. We, we unpacked this section last week, but I want it to be fresh in our minds. I want to just recap briefly what we looked at last week, and then I, I want to take a bit more of a textual approach, a thematic approach to our sermon this morning. We're going to be moving around a little bit so that we can maybe gain some greater perspective on, uh, on what the Scriptures say about us as a church, our response to government, things like that. So, here's what Paul says in Romans 13, 1 through 7. He says, "'Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad.'" Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And as we looked at last week, this, this again, is, as a reminder, this isn't the fullness of Paul's political theology. This isn't intended to describe all that Paul has to say or what Scripture has to say about government but it is instructive for us. We saw last week that the command given to believers is to submit to the government. We see it twice in this passage. This is the normal way that believers are to respond to the government. And the reason we saw last week is twofold, because they are actually instituted by God. They are servants of God. God places them there. They have the backing of His own authority and are discharging that responsibility wittingly or unwittingly on His behalf. The other reason, though, is because government exists as a general a principle for our good. They're designed to protect human life, to establish law and order. And in that regard, even bad governments can do a decent job at providing for and protecting human life rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil. In many ways, I think we can look at our own government and recognize that as much as we may disagree with a lot of what our government does, says, believes, one of the things we can be thankful for is that we live in a country like Canada. We have and we, we live in relative peace. Law and order are things that we get to enjoy on a daily basis. For the most part, of course, that's a generality and there are exceptions to this, but for the most part, most of us walk outside of our houses every single day and we get to experience the blessings of living in a country that has law and order. We feel safe and secure. We can be relatively certain that the police will punish those who commit crimes. 
and that our government seeks to reward and encourage good behavior. And the examples that Paul gives us are really fourfold. We are called to pay taxes. We're called to pay duties or customs, revenue. We're called to respect and to honor those in power and the laws that they're seeking to govern by. That's what we looked at last week. There's a quick recap for you if you weren't here and you missed it. The government exists, let me frame it like this, to protect and preserve human life, and we are therefore called to honor and respect them. But as I mentioned last week, this one passage isn't a treaty on political theology. It's not intended to be. And in many ways, it does leave us with unanswered questions, mainly about how we are to apply these truths. I think we can all acknowledge that this has been a a crazy season, if we can call it that, if two years can be called a season. One of the things I think most of us notice is that people now are more engaged in politics and talking about government than ever before, and rightly so. This is the cultural moment we live in. But I also think that there uh, there is lots of confusion, lots of concern, and frustration when it comes to the condition of this country, the role and motives and actions of government, and I can tell you this, that I share these concerns. But but I am also very concerned that there is in our country a growing polarization and radicalization that has impacted many of our lives and has even impacted the evangelical church. In many ways, I think Canada is beginning to look a little bit more like the United States that actually, for as much good that goes on there, there's a lot of a polarization politically and radicalization. I think it's, it's found its way here in many regards. And I just want to be clear out the gates. I've talked to a lot of you this week, and I know a lot of you are here because you're interested in, in, in maybe some of the questions that we need to ask or some of the answers that I'm going to try to give, but I just want you to know right at the gates, I want to kind of set the expectations. I am not interested in answering every question or resolving every issue, okay? Some of you may walk out of here very disappointed, but that's okay with me. Because I think many of the issues are so complex, they require more than simply a pastor standing up before a bunch of people and giving some kind of an answer. They require a lot more thought, a lot more nuance. I also don't presume to have all the answers, to be quite honest with you. I've found that this season has been very complex. I'm, I'm still confused about many things and not entirely sure on how to respond. And so I, I don't want to stand up here and presume that I have all the answers because I don't. And I would also be, I think, naive to think that by the end of this message that we would all be on the same page about everything that's going on in our culture, about all of the the questions and answers. I think I'd be naive to believe that. But I'll tell you this, my concern is for us, specifically us as a church, Redemption Durham, our church family. And my greatest concern is that we are glorifying God in all areas of our lives Yes, even in our political engagement and involvement. But I hope as much as, as, as I think there's much we might disagree on, or perhaps maybe not as much as we might think, I hope we can all agree on this. We as a church have a mission statement, don't we? And if you're new and you don't 
Maybe you've never seen this before. Let me just throw it up on the screen for you just to take a look at. Here's, here's the mission statement of our church. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God, okay? That, that is the mission statement of our church. That is why we exist. That frames everything we do as believers in this church. This ought to, here's my point in this, this ought to govern us even as we engage and interact with politics and culture. Really, every sphere of our lives is to be governed by this mission statement. As Christians, we are to be governed by our desire to magnify Christ and bear witness to Him. And in light of that, I just want us to think really of three areas of tension I think that we face. I could have said a lot more. It's very difficult to boil this down to just three areas, but I'm going to try and fit a lot into these categories, so bear with me. Three areas of tension that we face, and, and here's how I want to frame this for us. We must shape our perspective and priorities very carefully, and we do so as we consider these areas, I think, of tension that we face. This is, this is the first area of tension, I think, um, discussion and disagreement. Now, I said we're going to be moving around in our Bible, so I want you to flip forward in your Bible to the book of Ephesians. This, this particular area of discussion and disagreement is, is of great concern for me, of great interest to me, and I hope it is for you too. And I want to just set the stage by reading a passage about unity in the body of Christ. There's, there's so many passages we could look at, but I, I love this one. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There it is, the emphasis of living for Jesus in every sphere of our lives. With all, look at this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, I love that word, like circle that in your Bible, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why is this so important to Paul? Look at this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Stop there. Now, we're not going to unpack all of that, but I think a lot of that is, is relatively clear, isn't it? The call to unity eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And here's why I say that, because a passage like that assumes that this is not going to be easy. It assumes that we're going to have disagreements in the family of God. It assumes there are going to be things that have the potential to do great destruction in the family of God, to divide us instead of unite us. And so as the family of God... It is incumbent upon us to learn how to fight for unity, even where we might find diversity of opinions and thought and conviction. Let me say it like this. As Christians, we must learn how to discuss and disagree without dividing. And, and let me be clear. Let me qualify that. I am not saying there aren't things we ought to divide on. There are. There are primary issues, there are theological and doctrinal issues that, that should divide us. We, we ought to be able to draw clear lines in the sand over what matters most, but we need to be careful what we put into that category. Does that make sense? 
And the discussions in this season have been endless. I know because I, and, and I'm looking across, I have had so many discussions with so many of you sitting here over the last couple of years about so many important things, about so many, I mean, really important things, major life decisions, things that are impacting your future, your family, your potential income, so many important decisions. And, and there's been endless discussions, hasn't there? Not just in the church, I mean just in, in our culture, about masks, about restrictions, about vaccines, about mandates and convoys, and, and I mean just the list goes on and on and on. And I know you want to know where I land on all these things, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I, I, listen, I, I say that, listen, here's why I tell you that. It's not that I don't have opinions or convictions about some of these things, and it's not that some of these things aren't worthy of being stated even from up front. Some of them are. But here's why I say that, because we've always, as a church, we've always sought to teach you how to think, not simply just tell you what to think. And by the way, sometimes I have to tell you what to think because the Bible's very clear on it, right? So again, we're not afraid to do that. But the goal, my goal in particular, and this, this carries on, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 4. If you read the rest of this chapter, you want to know what it does? It tells you the primary responsibility of the leaders of the church. And the primary responsibility of the leadership of the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It is to help mature you, to grow you, to help you discern what is right and true and honorable to the Lord. And I just want you to know that that is my primary goal every single time I stand before you to open God's Word. I want to equip you to think biblically. And we've always sought to promote unity amidst a diversity of opinions, beliefs, and convictions, not at the expense of the truth, but being careful to discern what is of first or primary importance and what is not. And let me just let you know that that is not always easy. We've always said that we want to major on the majors, minor on the minors, and in all things love. Now, let me remind you that that idea of love is the dominating characteristic of the believer that Paul is emphasizing. And by the way, it brackets, remember we looked at this last week, it brackets his admonition, his command to the believers to submit to government. In other ways, in other words, Paul is most greatly concerned about believers expressing and manifesting genuine love in their lives. A genuine love that represents and displays the love of Jesus Christ. Like I said, I've had many conversations with many of you over many of the issues that are going on today. And the reason that I hesitate to, to get up here and take strong positions on things is again, not because I'm fearful in any way, but I think it's just simply to acknowledge that not every Christian sees every one of these issues the same way. I mentioned last week that there are basic principles to think through how to handle government submission, and I think that the category I gave you is perhaps the most helpful. We must disobey when the government forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids. I actually think every single issue that we face can be boiled down and put underneath one of those two categories. Sometimes it takes a little bit more thought and carefulness, but I think we can fit everything, every issue under one of those two umbrellas. 
I do think these past couple of years, it hasn't always been easy to determine what fits into these categories, and it often, like I said, requires careful thinking. It requires, listen, here's what I want to encourage. It requires discussion. It requires even debate. It requires the willingness, listen, to disagree with one another, to sharpen one another, to press into one another. Those are characteristics and qualities, listen, that believers ought to possess because we want to be a people of truth. We want to be a people who discern correctly. Amen? So we invite this. We're offended by it as believers. I think that many in the church believe that just because we, we don't always agree means that we must necessarily then divide. And I just, I just want you to know that sh- that should not be the case in the family of God, not, I guess, not, again, not unless it's over primary issues. It is possible to disagree with people and still love them. Do you know that? Did you realize that? I, I hope so. In fact, in fact, I want you to turn to the person beside you and say, I can disagree with you and still love you. Go, do it. Seriously. And if it's your spouse, if, if it's your spouse, this could be the best marriage counseling you've gotten all year. Some, some of you couples needed to hear that this morning, right? It, it is okay to disagree in the family of God and to still love one another and, and to not think wrongly or poorly about another person. I mean, love believes all things. It hopes all things. It's okay to disagree and still love one another. So, let's, 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 let's put this into practice. Let's talk about masks for a second. This is the issue, right? This is the issue you've all been waiting for. I just want to show you how it's possible for two believers to disagree on, on issues that are not objectively clear in the Scriptures. Right? There are some people here who are wearing their mask because they believe it's the right thing to do to honor the government. It's as simple as that. Some people are wearing it because they're actually fearful of the virus, and, and, and they, they're concerned about their own health, and I get that too, but, but a lot of Christians are choosing to wear their mask simply because they realize the government has asked us to do it. it. It doesn't mean they agree with it. It doesn't mean they agree with the motives behind it. It doesn't mean they believe it's effective in any way, shape, or form. They're simply doing it because they believe it's a way they can honor the government. And I think, listen, I think that's absolutely fair. That is a reasonable Christian biblical argument. That's okay. But but let me say this. There are other people in this room, very obviously, who do not believe. (laughs) This is, listen, this is why this issue is so polarizing, because you make a statement, right? It's right on your face. You can't hide it. I say that like tongue-in-cheek, but I say that seriously, that this has been part of the problem with this. You see, the danger is to begin to assume what somebody actually believes. The danger is to begin to judge somebody based on those assumptions. The danger is to begin to treat people differently because you think you know what's best and you think they don't know what they're talking about. And this is devastating in the family of God. It's destructive and it's not okay. It's disunifying. And so I just want you to know there are people in this room who will stand before you and make an honest, reasonable argument for why they do not believe they should wear a mask, why they believe civil disobedience is appropriate in this instance. In fact, I asked somebody this week to give me their, their argument for this because I wanted to be clear about what, this, what the, the line of thinking is. See, for some, they're convinced that these masks are not only ineffective and unnecessary, but they've actually become a political medium to perpetuate fear, 
to perpetuate judgment towards others, to perpetuate panic. They perpetuate dishonesty, and that the government is actually leveraging these things in order to continue to overstep their jurisdiction. And in this instance, those individuals, the decision to not wear a mask is a form of protest. And listen, I would say to you, that is a reasonable argument for a Christian to make. And by the way, all those people that I've talked to have been willing, listen, to submit to the consequences of that. If they walk into a store and they're not wearing a mask and they're asked to leave, they'll do so graciously. This is a reasonable Christian argument. You may not agree. Listen, here's my point. You may not agree with one or both of those arguments, and maybe there's another argument you can make in between there. Here's my point. That's okay. It's okay. You can still love one another. You can still care for one another, respect one another, honor one another. That is absolutely okay. You can have legitimate disagreements on this and many other things. Let me ask you some questions that I'm not going to answer. (laughs) Must a Christian obey when the government limits the gathering of Christian fellowship in their home? Must a Christian submit to putting a substance in their body because the government mandates it? Should a Christian support a protest or oppose a protest? Do you see my point? Does the Bible speak to any one of those things directly? No, it does not. But I can stand up here and tell you that there are reasonable arguments to be made from people on both sides of these debates. And it's important as believers to give each other a little bit of grace in some of these areas that are not abundantly clear. You can have legitimate disagreements on this, and not all these issues are the same, by the way. I'm not trying to equate everything as being the same, right? There's a difference between asked to put something on your face and somebody being asked to put something in their body. Those are two different things. Degrees matter. But you see, my job is not to stand up and bind your conscience where the Scripture is not clear. It is to help foster unity amidst the diversity of opinions and convictions. It is, listen, to help foster an environment where we can wrestle these things through together. We can sharpen one another. We can challenge one another. We can persuade one another. We can push one another. And at the end of the day, we can disagree with one another and still love one another. Here's what this requires. It requires us to display humility, charity, kindness, even while we hold strong convictions. We must, listen, this is so important, especially in a season, listen, I understand the tensions have been ratcheted down a little bit, and that's a good thing, but here's my concern. It's just a matter of time before something else culturally, politically, socially, you know, ratchets the tensions right back up. And if Christians aren't thinking carefully, if we're not being discerning, and if we're not thinking, listen, like Christ, we could do great damage to the family of God. We must resist the temptation to assume what others believe. We must refuse to judge others because they do not believe as we do, or they do not believe as I do personally. Let me say this, personally me or we as a church. Here's a big concern for me. Listen, big concern. Outside of our church, I, I, listen, I want to encourage you. I really think that many of you are doing this so well, but one of the things I'm seeing in the broader evangelical church is there, there, there is uh, lines being drawn in the sand about where people land on some of these things, and they're being used as a standard of biblical orthodoxy and faithfulness. And I'm telling you right now, that is not okay. 
It is not okay to judge somebody else's faithfulness to Jesus because they wear a mask or don't wear a mask, because they've got the vaccine or they didn't get the vaccine. You cannot equate those things with biblical faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Good people disagree on these things. We need to talk to one another, listen, and above all, as Paul has been admonishing over and over again, as Peter says, to love one another with brotherly affection. Second, we must shape our perspective and priorities as we consider earthly and eternal earthly and eternal realities, things. And I want you to flip forward now to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 13. I think any talk about government is, is incomplete if we don't consider what the book of Revelation has to say, particularly this chapter. Now, I am not going to try to get into unpacking all the details of the book of Revelation, so I, I may be stirring up the hornet's nest, opening a can of worms here, but that's okay. We can deal with that. My point is to simply show you this, that John offers us a perspective on government that is helpful for us to hold in tension with what Paul says about government in Romans chapter 13. You see, we are living as Christians in this tension between two kingdoms, an earthly kingdom and an eternal kingdom. And what we believe biblically is that there is an already not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has invaded uh, this present earthly evil age, but it will not be consummated in finality until the end of this age, listen, when Jesus will return and destroy all the enemies of God. And in this in-between time, human governments impose their structure or their form of rule over human beings. We looked at last week, and there's a multitude of forms of government. The Bible doesn't actually advocate for any particular form of government in this earthly economy. As believers, though, here's the important part, we await the day when evil earthly rulers will be deposed and Christ will rule eternally. So, we live in this strange tension. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to realize the tension that God has called us to live in. As we saw in Romans 13, the call to submit represents the normal way believers should respond to civil rulers. When Paul called believers to submit to government, he was well aware. This is really important. He was well aware from his own experience as a missionary that those in power could actually act unjustly and thereby promote evil rather than good. By the way, the story of Jesus' trial and execution itself represents a gross miscarriage of justice, doesn't it? The greatest miscarriage of justice this world has ever known. You see, why am I saying that? Here, here's why. Because governments who uphold a degree of law and order and in many ways promote the good of society, they can also be evil. And in fact, the Bible assumes that the governments of this world will have an evil, ungodly bent since they are distorted by selfish ambition and will often inflict misery upon human beings. We're seeing this all around the globe, aren't we? And I know this is the tension we wrestle with. We look at what's going on in other countries. We look at what's, what's happening around the world, and we see the evil oppression that's taking place, and so we, we wrestle, rightly so, with what Paul says. How do we submit to these kind of evil governments? Well, well here's the interesting thing. The Bible actually wants us to know that it, and, and it acknowledges the reality that many of these, these governments are, in fact, evil to the core. 
In Revelation 13, I'm going to kind of pick and choose here what to look at. We're not going to read the whole thing. There's imagery in here, symbolism, that I'm not going to unpack, but one of the things you need to know is that this is actually linking us very tightly to the book of Daniel, particularly Daniel chapter 7. It's where a lot of this imagery comes from. Verse, this talks about a beast, and, um, and behind the beast is a dragon. Verse 2, right in the middle, and it, uh, to the, the dragon gave his power. Look at this in this language. The dragon gave his power, his throne, and great authority. This is governmental language. Verse 4, you say, what was this beast doing with all of this? Um, by the way, the dragon is symbolic of Satan. The beast is the antichrist kind of government that has been established with a foundation in satanic desires. Verse 4, what's the greater desire? And they worshiped the dragon. Do you see that? That's what Satan's after. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed, listen to this again, to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Listen to this, church. This is for believers. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Listen, church, if you think it's bad now or if you think it's bad here, I promise you it is far worse in other places and is only going to get worse until the time Jesus Christ returns to establish His kingdom forever. The book of Revelation paints, in one sense, a bleak picture about world governments. John, again, is drawing upon Daniel chapter 7. The Roman Empire, I think, is, is viewed here as the culmination and climax of the evil rule of human beings. And for John, this meant, of course, the Roman Empire that he was living under and surrounded by. But listen, as John Stott says, every succeeding generation of Christian people knows some equivalent of it. In the book of Revelation, the city of Rome represents Babylon with all of its greed, love of luxury, and immorality. Can, I, can, I, can, can you just, does that sound familiar at all? The government, of the world of man, Babylon, this is symbolic language. It's telling us, listen, what is characteristic of, of Babylon, of the world? It's this, the love of luxury, sexual immorality. It's an antichrist mentality. It hates God. It wants nothing to do with God. But what is most significant about Babylon in the book of Revelation is that it spills the blood of the saints. This, this is what is promised for followers of Jesus Christ. Believers lived in a context in which the governing authority oppressed them and even put them to death. 
The Roman Empire is presented not as a model, listen, not as a model of justice and righteousness, but rather as a ferocious and inhuman beast that tramples upon and mistreats God's people. The beast, and this is a key theme here, demands supremacy and worship. It stands as a rival to the almighty God and King of the universe. The beast and the dragon behind him persecutes and slays the believers who refuse to bow the knee. So here's here's what we see in this tension where Paul focuses on government as an entity that restrains evil. John emphasizes the satanic and demonic character of the government. Thomas Schreiner, commenting on this passage, says this, the problem with Rome and every government is the desire for totalitarian rule. Lurking behind the government's demand for absolute commitment and submission is Satan himself, who uses government to advance his own ends in order to procure worship of himself. See, why am I showing you this? Some of you are like, Ian, you're not giving me much hope right now. I'm saying this because I want to acknowledge something. I think it's foolish for us to simply sit back and believe that the government always has our best interest at heart. It's foolish. Listen, we live in… Listen, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the god of this world. He is blinding the minds of unbelievers. We would be foolish to simply sit here and think that government always has our best interest in mind. And as believers, we need to be discerning and careful. That doesn't mean we throw off government as if it's all bad. Paul has told us we can't do that. Here's what I'm saying. We reserve the right to criticize and to discern continually between the state functioning properly under divine authority and the state acting illegitimately as divine authority. You see the difference? We can acknowledge where the state is functioning, listen, according to God's divine authority, and we can also acknowledge when the state has overstepped its God-given jurisdiction and in itself tries to become the divine authority. There are times, this is why we need to be discerned, this is why some of these issues are not always easy to parse or figure out and neatly put into those two categories I gave you, because there are times where the government is functioning outside of its God-given jurisdiction. They begin to intrude into areas they have no business, according to Scripture, intruding. And so when they do speak to some of those things, when they do try to direct us in some of those things, we can say with confidence that they are commending what God forbids. They're trying to overstep their bounds. Now, degrees matter here. We need to be careful. As I said before, there is a difference between a mask requirement and a vaccine mandate. There's a difference between a speed limit and a one-child-only policy. And what I want you to see is that discernment is crucial for the believer. While we don't die in every hill, we must die in some hills. As a church, we have been wrestling with these issues over the years, and we have come to conclusions that there are times, and there has been times, even in this pandemic, when civil disobedience 
is okay. And one of the things I want you to see is that Revelation 13 reminds us that there are ideologies being promoted in our culture that run contrary to a biblical worldview. And I'm not saying any of this about the government to make you fearful of the government, but instead to help you understand that we are living in Babylon. Listen, we are living in Babylon. We are exiles. We are sojourners. We are strangers. And that is why what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is so critical for living the Christian life. Remember, everything, he takes the gospel in 11 chapters, and then the beginning of chapter 12, he gives us the framework in two verses for how we are to now live out the Christian life. We are not to be conformed to this world, amen? But we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds that we may be able to test and discern what is good, what is perfect, what is acceptable so that we might live our lives as an act of worship unto God, not to, not to the state, not to any government, not to any other institution. We don't bow to any idol. Jesus Christ is our Lord, and we live our lives for Him as a living sacrifice. So everything in our life matters. Everything must be filtered through the Word of God. And it's so critical. Listen, the, re- the reason I'm telling you we're living in Babylon is because I want you to see according to the Scriptures. Listen, things may get better for a while. We may be able to stem the tides for a while. Maybe 10 years, maybe 50 years, maybe 100 years. I, I don't know how long this is going to last for, but I can tell you this. There is a day coming where it will get worse. We are seeing increased hostility ramping up to the church. Does that mean we do nothing? No, I'm going to get there, so hang in there. But it means this, you need to be realizing right now, we are living in Babylon, and what matters most is your mind. The the subtleties of what this world is trying to infect us with, an anti-God, an anti-Christ way of thinking, a secular kind of humanism and hedonism, it wants us to bury our heads in all of these things, to be shaped and formed by them, so we do not live faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, listen to me. It is imperative that right now, right now, you are forming your heart and mind every day by the Word of God, that you are going deeper and deeper into the things of God, that you're spending more time in the Word. When it's so easy, listen, to spend so much more time in the world, to be so more impacted by the ideology and thing, to be in, in social media, to be um, just killing yourself, entertaining yourself to death, you are being bombarded with the messages of this world. It is imperative that you learn how to turn off off that tap and put yourself under the life-giving water of the Word of God. Not less time, more time. And parents, let me just speak to you for a minute. It is imperative that you are shaping the way your kids are thinking about this world. You cannot wait on this. You cannot, listen, if you don't shape the way they think and what they believe, somebody else is going to do it for you. And I promise you, it will not be in alignment with the Word of God. You must be shaping the way they think. You must be pouring the Word of God in. You must be helping them. Listen, talking about current issues. You must be talking about the sexual revolution and the ideologies that they're facing every single day if they're walking into the public school system, if they're watching Disney. You have to. You have to. But can I just, can I encourage you here, listen, the greater theme in Revelation 13 is that God is sovereign over all the beast does. Isn't that good news? 
Here's the comfort for your soul and mind. You're like, man, things are going to get worse. The government is going to turn against believers. Believers, listen, read the book of Revelation, are going to be persecuted and martyred, and the martyrs in heaven are going to cry out, how much longer? When will you avenge us? And God's going to say, hold on, there's just a few more people who need to be put to death for my name's sake. When you read that section of Revelation, here's what I want you to pick up on. Listen to this. The authority of the beast was, listen, quote, unquote, given to him. Man, Satan's got a lot of free reign in this world, but I'll tell you this right now. He is on God's leash. One day he will answer to the ultimate authority. And the best part in all of this, listen, this is not to be fearful. This is hope-filled, even, evil, satanic, earthly governments God is using to bring about His righteous rule and eternal government that will have no end. That's how the book of Revelation ends. That's what God did to bring about our salvation. Let me remind you about how God used the evil, wicked government of the day to bring about our salvation. Listen to what what Peter preached on Pentecost Sunday. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Hallelujah. God will take the most evil, wicked government. He'll take the most cunning, nefarious plan, and He will use them for His good purposes to bring about our salvation and to bring about the furtherance of the kingdom of God. I love what the author of Hebrews says. Because Jesus, listen, Jesus is our model here. He's the paradigm for the Christian life. Do you realize that? Suffering and glory. Jesus was mistreated. We will be mistreated. But our hope is in what lies ahead. He says this in Hebrews 13, 12 through 14. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. And then listen to this. Listen to the hope. For here we have no lasting city. Here. We have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. We are waiting for the day when God's reign over the world will be consummated. And we find great comfort in God's unrelenting sovereignty. And in light of this, listen to what Tom Schreiner says. He says, we are not to adopt a revolutionary mindset as if that could usher in the kingdom of God through political change. But we are to remember that our ultimate devotion is to God Himself and Jesus as Lord. Any government demand for unconditional loyalty must be resisted. You say, how should this look? Let me give you our final point. We must shape our perspective and priorities as we consider influence and impact. I want you to flip backwards now to the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. And I simply want to read to you the words of Jesus 
Matthew 5 through 7, he gives us a sermon, what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And to those who are believers who are part of the kingdom of God, still living in the tension of the kingdom of this world, listen to what he says. Beginning in verse 13, let's read through verse 16. Love hearing those pages turn, by the way. Jesus says this to his children. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, I'm reminded that when the night is darkest, the church has the opportunity to shine the brightest. And I also want you to realize that as much as we see problems in this world and maybe even in government, listen, the world is a broken place, but it's not a bad place. You see, Christianity is not an escapist religion. We aren't called to some kind of monastic life apart from the world. God is not calling us to go to Oregon and start our own commune, okay? We're not an escapist religion. This is really important. You see, the Christian faith is deeply incarnational. It goes right to the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to consider this. You know, when God looked at this broken world, He didn't send the law, the prophets, angels, or a book to fix the broken world. Instead, He Himself came in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, in His high priestly prayer, prayed for His disciples before His crucifixion. He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We are not called to escape the world. We are called to live faithfully in the world. You see, God intends His redeemed children to join His work in bringing new life to the world. Not only are we called to the world, we are called to a particular time and place. And this is going to be hard for some of us to hear as much as we don't want to admit this because we look around and we see the the erosion of our culture and society. Listen, God determines our particular cultural moment. God has put us the church, His people, here at this particular time, in this particular place, for this particular reason, that we might be salt and light in this moment. And there are many challenges, admittedly, from which we would like to escape, many dangers we'd like to avoid. We'd like to protect and insulate our our kids and ourselves from the erosion of morality, from wicked ideologies, from secular humanism and hedonism and individualism and every other ism you can possibly think of. But I want to remind you, listen, that safety is not the primary goal in the Christian life. Faithfulness is. And there's still much good to be done in this world. And so I want to first just give you a warning, maybe an observation from Scripture. I think it's fascinating and telling that the Apostle Paul 
In his body of writing, he never offers any political commentary. He, he lives, just think about this, he lives in the middle of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire the world had seen up to that point in human history, and he never says anything about it. He never comments on current events, even in a text that might have lent itself to some sort of comment about the emperor or maybe even engaging with the powers that be. Nothing. He says absolutely nothing. And how different is this from the church of today? What explains the difference? That's the question I want to ask. I think this is it. This is really important. For Paul, listen, Christian, for Paul, there is no correlation between the advancement of the kingdom of God and the advancement of some earthly kingdom. For Paul, there is no correlation between the advancement of the kingdom of God and the advancement of some earthly kingdom. None. In other words, no human government can advance or thwart the kingdom of God. That is good news, church. It means that Paul believes exactly what Jesus said. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? Amen. That's the hope. Don't confuse the political landscape with gospel advancement. These two things are not necessarily related, nor should they maybe even be equated. And the the proof of this is simply in the pudding, so to speak. Do you know where the gospel is advancing fastest in the world right now? Iran and Afghanistan. Do you know where the gospel is advancing slowest right now? Yeah, you guessed it. North America, Europe that was once the bastion of the Protestant faith. The global south is leading the charge when it comes to the Christian faith. South America, Africa, Asia, the global north is lagging behind. Now you say, well, well, what's better? Is there a better form of government? Yes. I mean, can I like, let's not be foolish here. Is a free democratic society better for the flourishing of society than a closed communist evil dictatorship? Can we all agree? Yes. But does that mean it is best for the gospel advancement? Could be. It ought to be. But it's not necessarily. Why? Because we we believe. Isn't this true? We believe what the Bible says. We believe what church history proves, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Try to shut down the church of Jesus Christ. Try to prevent believers from following Jesus and worshiping Jesus and living for Jesus. You want to know what happens? You cannot stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not waiting for some kind of a utopian democracy here and now. We are waiting for a righteous theocracy that Jesus will usher in in His good time. I'm not, listen, listen to this, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we should not engage in politics. I'm not suggesting for a moment that we should separate things into a secular sacred divide. Everything in your life is sacred. Everything is an opportunity for you to live for Jesus, to display the love of Christ, to display the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything is an opportunity to live out your faith. But let's be clear, not everything is as sacred as everything else. I'm not suggesting for a moment that you should not engage in politics. 
I'm not suggesting for a moment that's, that you shouldn't run for office. Some of you, maybe you should. You should run for office. You should affect things. I'm not suggesting for a moment you shouldn't peacefully protest. There are plenty of ways that we can exercise, listen, the God-given responsibilities or rights that we have in a democratic society. Where we are afforded these things, it is a privilege, it is a responsibility, and many of us should be more actively engaged in and participating in, listen, the flourishing of our society and culture. If you don't think that I believe that we should be doing many of these things, you have misunderstood me. We are not called to hide our heads in the sand and disengage. But it's a matter of perspective and balance. Does the world need more Christians involved in politics? Yeah. Does the world need more Christian parents involved in their public schools? Yes. Does the world need more Christians involved in their neighborhood, in their community, and their local t-ball team? Sure, absolutely. I encourage all of those things, listen, as a means of influencing culture and society for the common good, you should vote wisely. When issues pop up, like we talked about recently with Bill C-4, you should hear that and write your MPs, write your MPPs, write the office of the Prime Minister. Let the Christian voice be heard, but as you do so, let them know that they are ultimately accountable to the greater authority of God. Let them know you're thankful for them. Let them know that you're praying for them, that you realize their job is hard that they need wisdom from God. Try to affect policy change and legislation. Be salt and light. Be a restraining and preservative influence in the world. The world needs more Christians influencing culture. Let me say that loudly and clearly, but let me say this. What the world needs most is Christ. And if we become known more for political activism, social change, freedom fighting than we are for the gospel proclamation, we've missed it. We're out of balance. We've lost perspective, and our priorities are out of whack. You see, as Christians, the hope we have is in the power of God working in the hearts of people. Our gospel influence in the world, while it should be present, listen, it should be governed by a desire for a greater gospel impact on the world. The transforming effects of the gospel are far more significant than the transforming effects of politics. Can we agree on that? Christ ruling by His Word and Spirit are, are far more powerful than any earthly leader, any political party, or any country on the face of this planet. Our current problem is not political, it is spiritual. Being salt and light is not simply about doing what is good for society with an earthly perspective, it is about doing what is good for souls with an eternal perspective. The Apostle Paul said, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He said, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. These are statements, listen, about priority, not dismissing the need for other Christian involvement. It is about priority. It is about perspective. 
only, listen, only the biblical gospel rescues people from sin, death, and hell. Nothing else will do. If you have put your hope in politics, listen, you will be sorely disappointed. If you are here today and you're an unbeliever and you have put your hope in some kind of political change, some kind of shift in government, some kind of legislation, I need you to hear this today. The only hope for your soul is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. What you need most is not legislation, it's salvation. And today, listen, today, if you don't know Jesus as Lord, I invite you, I beg you, bow the knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Repent of your sins. Embrace Him as Master. Be washed clean of all your sins, of all your rebellion. And know life eternal that will change you and transform you here and now so that you can be, listen, you ought to be the best Canadian citizen this world has ever seen because you know that your citizenship is ultimately in heaven and will one day be realized when Jesus Christ comes and returns and conquers sin, death, and every enemy that stands against Him. As Christians, our chief end is to preach biblically and to live meaningfully. And if we want to change the course of events to influence our society, to move the political needle, Christ has told us how. Be salt and light, proclaiming faithfully and living meaningfully. In every identifiable sphere of life, live for Jesus. I'll close with this. One author said this, the reason this country has lost its moral compass is because it lacks citizens who know God. In a declining culture and moral environment such as our own, the greatest need is not for more laws or even for a greater spiritual sensitivity on the part of unbelievers, but rather for confession of sin and a deep moving of the Spirit of God among God's people. Paul would say it like this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. We are called to make a gospel impact, church. Let me throw this back up on the screen one more time. You need to see this as we close. Here's our mission. It governs everything. We are called to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and matured people multiplied, all to the glory of God.